first ever episode 16 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and as always, we're coming to you live from London in the heart of Fintech up here in Level 39. I'm joined this week by my colleagues at 11FS, Jason Bates and Simon Taylor, with Chris over in Vegas dancing his heart out, I understand. As always, we've got a great show for you today, talking about something that's very close to my heart, and that's insurance, and specifically whether insurance is the new Fintech. To discuss this topic, we've got some great guests for you. We have, backed by absolutely popular demand, Lida Glyptis, who is the Director of Sapien Global Markets. We also have Freddie McNamara. Freddie is the founder and CEO of insurance startup Cover, as well as Nigel Walsh, who is the partner at Deloitte. Before we get started, a little bit of a stat update. We've now been downloaded in over 106 countries and remain top of the business podcast on iTunes, which is just amazing. Thank you so much for all your support. Keep those comments and five-star reviews coming and keep spreading the word. This week, we also have a little bit of a format change for you. With so many phenomenal guests, we don't always have the time to cover everything in one podcast, so we're trying out something new. As well as the chapters that we've implemented, we're now going to be breaking things down a little bit. Every Wednesday, we'll bring you the FinTech Insider you know and love in a streamlined format. In addition, every Friday, we'll start bringing you insider interviews, where you'll hear it from the FinTech's brightest and boldest in a little bit more detail. Let us know what you think to this change. This Friday, you'll hear from Matilda Strom on how Swedish startup Bimmer uses mobile to deliver affordable insurance to 24 million low-income consumers in emerging markets. If you have any suggestions on the format, please drop us an email to fintechinsider at 11fs.co.uk or drop us one at fintechinsiders on Twitter. Right, let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this week. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, we have got uh, another awesome show ahead of us in terms of what we're doing. So I'm making really weird eye contact with Lida as I was saying that. I'm just going to bring that up and bring it back. So uh, don't edit this out. I think it's funny. So <laughs> in the room, we've got... So Lida, say hey. Hi, guys. Lida Glyptis. Uh, we've got Freddie. Hi, I'm Freddie McMurray. And we've got Nigel. Nigel Walsh. Hey. Fantastic. Well, let's probably get into the news quite quickly, because as always, we've got quite a long list of things to to talk through. And this one is um, probably a, a slightly terrifying one. I think we've we've seen London slightly on its knees over the last couple of months with all the Brexit talk and what's been going through. But we have this article in the FT that China challenges, which I struggle to say myself, as I, I always do. So China challenges London's fintech lead, which is an interesting one. So we've got the UK drops to annual ranking as Brexit concerns hit sector funding. So is there anything we can really do to stop China really being able to sort of take over everything that we're, we're looking at? They have the numbers, they have the investment, they have uh, an amazing amount of people in terms of where they're going. So how do we, how do we defend ourselves here? Pregnant silence. Um. <laughs> Maybe we don't have an answer. Is that it? Like oh, we're no. done. It, it depends Let's all on, move to China. It depends on no. <laughs> well, actually, maybe it depends on um, on what we're measuring. So, on 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 the one hand, if we're talking about incidents of collaboration, units of um, output, um, if we're measuring things in terms of volume and size, you know, there's there's no chance. There's no chance that we can stand up to an economy of that size, that level of commitment and that rate of growth at the moment, because China comes with, with its share of burdens, but it's unencumbered by the sort of legacies that are slowing the European and US um, economies down. But if we are talking about the type of um, amazing and unlikely collaboration that caused the fintech phenomenon to start in London, the fact that you had 
nuclear physicists and fashion designers sitting next to each other and having unlikely conversations that led to incredible products being designed, then no control economy can replicate that. The problem we're having is that Brexit has numbed everyone. And although the number of companies leaving is actually quite small, there are some, but, but it's not noticeable yet. The exodus is not quite there. The quality of conversations is gone because everyone is is looking at survival, is, is sort of stressed and numb. Well, but step, step back, just step back one second. So if we turn around and say China challenges London's fintech leader, take out the word fintech, could it not be anything? I mean, <laughs> let's be really clear here. Where do we expect China not to be playing or challenging us? It's, they're everywhere, right? Look at the, the energy sector, look at everything that they do. They are an enormous superpower with some great talent, great, great opportunity, great scale. So why wouldn't they be challenging it? It's very true. Yeah, I think uh, given everything that they've got going for them, I guess the the thing that they haven't necessarily always been famous for in terms of, your, to your point, leader, really is is kind of innovating around what they're doing. They they have the controls and the mechanisms to just continue doing what they're doing, and uh, they have the the sort of scale and investment and uh, political power just to kind of make that successful, don't they? So if they're starting to sort of play the rest of the world at their own game with regards to innovation and innovative companies and uh, investments into not the the huge organizations that actually mostly we sort of see coming out of China, but actually interesting startups, then that's got to be terrifying for the rest of the world, really. I, I guess, you know, to your point, Leader, though, it's if we are playing a scale game, then arguably, why has the UK really become a lead in itself? You know, I, I guess we have to kind of look at the, the factors, and most of them don't come down to investment, don't come down to uh, really almost just the the soil in which the the fintech stuff has been sort of grown in it's the it's the melting pot it's the regulation it's all of the change that we sort of see and you know that is that copyable is that fakeable you know we've seen loads of people try to copy the sandbox but is it possible there have been a lot of attempts some are are faring a little better than others but we haven't seen a, a successful one quite yet and i think like most successful experiments the flourishing of the london fintech scene was entirely accidental um, it has been nurtured once it was figured out what it was that it was bringing to the to the table, but nobody nobody planted it, nobody designed it. It was just a, a center pull from people with very interesting backgrounds from a variety of very good universities down the road and and people sort of um, being close to each other and working together. I do wonder though whether the decentralization that we tend to associate with the word fintech within the London ecosystem is actually what what the Chinese ecosystem looks like. Because when we look at the really innovative plays, um, and innovative they are, they're also huge. We don't see a fragmented um, multitude of small companies with a genuine chance of survival. We're seeing some really innovative plays with serious muscle behind them because you know China does things to scale exceptionally well but there is no appetite as far as I can see for a truly fragmented multi-voice ecosystem now is that necessary you know we could have a, a, a whole conversation about it but if we are measuring for that then I don't think we'll be seeing it but the question is do you actually need it to have mm. the sort of flourishing that so are they the Although the Apple of, of the future, where you take an idea for a smartphone or a smart device, for example, someone picks it up and that makes a great going forward later down the line. For me, London's always been that place where you've got a mix of cultures, great location, common language, easily accessible, that you could just pick up, do something really, really quickly and then ex- expand out from, from that one point. I'm not sure you can do that in China. But I think with these lead tables, you have to have a look at 
what were the criteria behind it. And actually KPMG and, and this thing with H2 Ventures, uh, I think, determined the list based on capital raise and traction with consumers. So arguably, it's not China uh, so suddenly coming out of nowhere. It's if you'd have done this last year, the year before, it would still have been the same outcome. So it seems like the stories are crossed a little here. You know, we've got this narrative around London and as a fintech capital, but you know, China is ridiculous in terms of these uh, the scale and the vast nature of these these players. And I also want to say one another thing that uh, that to my mind reduces the uh, the value of this report, which is that Atom was the only one that made the top ten out of any startup in the UK. Uh, you pick Atom to uh, as, as one of the top ten. But to be fair, we have put Boris Johnson as our international uh, man of mystery going out there for foreign affairs as well, haven't we? So we, we don't pick the best people to go out there and talk, <laughs> talk for us, do we? So um, maybe I think the most interesting bit that sort of potentially sort of comes out of this, though, is to talk about the funding, which um, there's some interesting stats in here from Innovate Finance talking about at venture capital funding for the UK companies has fallen by a third in the first half of the year. Um, and this isn't just a, a kind of a total market trend. Actually, there's been a 150% growth in the rest of the globe, but actually we've seen a, a third of a decline. And maybe this ties in a little bit better into the next story, which we've got on the ftadvisor.com, which is saying ministers pledge fintech sector support post-Brexit. So this one feels a little bit like kind of uh, your mummy telling you everything's going to be okay and not to worry. But, um, you know, given that investment has dropped off so significantly, then can everything be okay? What, what are we promising here? Because that when we're talking about the fintech space, we, it's such a slippery term at times, I fear, that unless you pin it down, it, it could mean anything because it sort of does if you let it. So what can the government influence? Can they influence investment? Well, evidently not not what is not within their con control. And we've already seen, A, the petering off of investment, but also a, a number of funds moving away from the UK. That doesn't mean they won't invest in the UK, but the fact that they've moved means that they won't be um, accidentally bumping into clever ideas the way uh, the way they did. Therefore, the clever ideas might not come here anymore. Um, the regulatory piece, they can continue to um, to encourage, but let's face it, from a legal perspective, we'll have our hands full with whatever Brexit means over the last couple of years. So, Although the um, the fintech scene will remain vibrant and, and important, it is fighting with quite a lot of other very striking things for share of mind. So even if the regulator pledges to to pay attention, the the money is leaking elsewhere, and the 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 clients on the non retail side have been reluctant and slow and, and going down the POC route rather than the engagement route. And that time's going to stretch out and there's nothing the government can do about that. So provided that by fintech, we mean the startup ecosystem as well as new tech, then, then it is a bit of a false promise other than a potential pledge from the regulator to continue to make it easier than potentially might be elsewhere. But again, they're making the same comparison in the article. They're making the same comparison that says, you know, we've we've received less funding typically than Silicon Valley. He might as well have said China, I think. <laughs> I, think I think the point here is it's just a really woolly promise. <laughs> it's a well, very, no very <laughs> ministerial <laughs> promise. Of course, we're going to support your sector. Yeah. But um, at the end of the day, if the economic environment isn't right for startups, then they're not going to take off. The government could give every single startup $200,000 in cash 
for free and it still might not work and it probably wouldn't work in a lot of pretenders to the hub throne across the across the world i think you've got an interesting point there if you look at the overall chain in which things happen never mind fintech but if the banks or insurance companies or capital market organizations are slowing down the decision making that ultimately has the knock-on effect and that's kind of the the cold we're going to catch in the fintech or insurtech space if those mothership organizations that are going to try these things are slowing down and, and taking more caution because of Brexit, for example. Assuming that the fintechs you're talking about, that those that are collaborating with those organisations right. rather than taking them on in, in particular segments. Fair point. It's, a, it's an interesting... So we, we have some interesting quotes here. So the city minister, so Simon Kirby, he said um, specifically... So when it comes to Brexit... Let me reassure you on two key points. Firstly, that the government is determined to make our withdrawal from the EU a success for the fintech industry too, like it's already being seen as being really successful for everybody else. Um, and secondly, that we will be there listening to you and your ideas and how we can do that. So like to your point, really, it's it's saying nothing, isn't it? It is a very I'm not ministerial sure this is really point. an article. No, it's not. Yeah. It, Somebody it, it, talked to a minister and they gave an answer. Yeah, but, but so how was they... Kirby, uh, Freddie McMahon <laughs> would like £200,000. <laughs> we'd like to submit that as an idea, please. Well, like you say, though, it's, it's kind of what, what are they what are they confirming here? Because, you know, I'd sort of consider myself part of the fintech sector type thing. And are they basically going to assure that I can take my kids on holiday next year if all the work dries up doing stuff? So it just, this feels like a really strange kind of non, non-compete, non but you might yeah. be voters, therefore I don't want to annoy well, you too much. it's a bit much. of a false promise because the fintech sector is um, highly international and highly mobile. So we're already seeing academics being um, hit by the domiciliation issue. So experts who've been living in the country for a while but leveraging the the long academic holidays to go do research what a crazy idea actually not qualifying to stay on despite how long they've been in the country i would wager that quite a few of the um active and more successful players in the fintech ecosystem would actually be affected by that we were talking about passporting earlier we'll talk about that again uh, later we've got companies incorporated here but actually getting traction across the eea or eu as the uh, part of the conversation that is not entirely in the, co- in the uh, government's control is evolving, the thing that we all need to remember, and some of us around the room do because we've either been there or are there right now, is that startups will run out of funding before these conversations end. And I, I remember sitting there figuring out whether we've got money for the end of the quarter. And that's a very realistic and very familiar conversation not a scary one not an embarrassing one just a fact of life for startups now we're already months into this and absolutely nothing has happened Mm. a lot of scaremongering absolutely no commitment all the pocs that i was aware of have been pushed out to later in the year or early next year funds committed to pre-brexit have actually been all the promises have been honored but beyond that activity has slowed down to a halt meanwhile people are sitting on their hands at seeing whatever they had managed to amass over the last year or two disappear. I don't know that we will have a startup scene still here, still able to pick back up and start collaborating in a year's time if nothing happens. They will either have moved or the founders would have gone on and gotten another job. So yeah. we really need to allow these conversations to be aware, since we're listening, to the timelines that are relevant to these businesses. Isn't it the flip side as well? That the flip side is now more than ever, our financial institutions need more help to accelerate, to be more competitive in the marketplace. And one of the ways of doing that is collaborating with, working against, or however you choose to do so, with these startups. So 
it's in the government's interest to make sure that these guys stay here, are fully funded and have the ability to pay wages at the end of the quarter or get through these situations. Otherwise, we, we can talk ourselves into you know ground zero really, really quickly. And that's not the place it should be. London's not going to change. London's going to be great, vibrant, all the right people, all the same institutions that need changing. I, I think it's I think it's interesting though because that to to your point though, leader. If like this actually might be a brilliant thing for the banks. You know, arguably this is like the the kind of frost that kills the flu, right? You know, this is if if the the kind of starvation of of um, funding and change and everything kind of kills off a bunch of these fintechs, then actually banks don't have to do all those changes. Arguably. You know, nobody's done anything in banking for ages because nobody's done anything in banking for ages. And it's only when, you know, a Monza or a, an Atom or a Tandem or a bunch of fintech players actually come into the market that they're having to sort of push and spring into life. You know, uh, And we should say that Fendi has completely dried up. I mean, Monzo's just cl- closed with a 4.8 million. So I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would completely say that uh, maybe at the top end where, the, uh, where investors are taking really risky bets that's probably slowed down a bit but there is money available for decent companies posting decent metrics and and there always will be uh, the tedious thing about this entire story is that it's never going to end <laughs> it's going to be every headline is going to be despite brexit post brexit <laughs> brexit effects or brexit brexit doesn't affect yeah. and it is Really, really, it's getting boring already, and it's going to be boring for the next half decade. It's going to stay boring tech. for the next two hours, I'm afraid. We're going to keep, keep coming I, back. I sort of agree with you, but I will remind all of us because hey, it's my thing that retail is a very small piece of the market. And although in retail funding remains strong, and the contenders um, have their client base, and they don't, Monk doesn't need banks, Revolut doesn't need banks, they can they deal with me as an individual. But the minute you move away from retail and you start going down the corporate institutional and, and the sort of deeper end, you have slightly more convoluted issues because you don't have the option not to collaborate. You're going to have to either sell to them or sell with them. And that's where both investment is drying out. Without disagreeing with you, I think elsewhere it gets complicated. And I also think that then you start having a very weird sense of responsibility if you're the regulator because you you can push. But right now you're faced with a series of very complicated challenges. You have you know, the European Union saying Eurodollar clearing doesn't have to stay here. All of a sudden that looks like a massive chunk of the city and you care more about the knock-on sociological impact that will have on the entire country than 2,000 startups. Because you're right, Nigel, nobody wants people not to be able to pay their people who will then do the amazing thing and spend money and keep the economy going. But um, if you have to choose between two evils and there's only so much time in the day and so much attention span in, in the same set of brains, I fear all of these things might become secondary to some more burning platforms without disagreeing with anything that was said. I agree. I think... Um Maybe moving on to the to the next story then, because I think we can kind of keep going deeper and downer into our depressing Brexit hole in terms of sort of doing it. And no doubt we are going to come back to it again. But there's a slightly lighter hearted story for the next one. So well, this uh, isn't as equally weight, weighty as <laughs> it, it really 
isn't. And all, uh, based on the source, which is the mirror on this one, and for our international uh, audiences, you'll probably have to look it up. Um, and then and be amazed the, that we're actually referencing we, it. Yeah, <laughs> I feel bad about it, if I'm honest already. Um, but this is a story of a cheeky eBay user who is selling a plastic £5 note. So this is one of the uh, UK new £5 notes that have gone into circulation. Um, and advertising it on eBay as a upside-down printed £5 note and trying to sell it for £65,000. Now, for the, I say same probably amongst us in terms of what of doing, they have literally just turned up a £5 note and turned it upside down and tried to sell it as an upside-down <laughs> £5 note, which is amazing. But the, apparently it's taking bids in terms of what's doing it. But um, I didn't realise, though, but apparently sort of the new £5 notes is actually a thing. So some of them are going for a lot more than £5 in terms of doing it. Is that right? It's insane. I so want to laugh at these people. Really, really want to laugh at these people, particularly as I, I don't believe in money. I don't carry money. I, I have contactless. I've got Apple Pay. <laughs> but, uh, but they exist and they walk amongst us. And in fact, I live with one of them who hasn't quite bid for an eBay uh, upside down pound note as far as I know. But he does <laughs> diligently get cash out daily so that he can purchase things and get change back, including five pound notes that he then keeps because they might become valuable. And and I... Would you, would you like an, to send, send a message out? He's <laughs> otherwise normal. So we should all get together and create a support group for him. Um, <laughs> but but uh, and on that, I mean, there's a there's an article in the Sun. Hey, I'm gonna if you're gonna go for the mirror. Wow, I'm gonna go back with the Sun. Yeah, where we're, actually we're gonna get a, a story from four, nuts next, aren't we? It's, we're going down. Uh, there are now four AK forty-seven five-pound notes. So they're five-pound notes with a uh, with the serial number that starts AK forty-seven. Getting all gangster. Here. Mm, nice. Um, and they've got a, a guide price of a million pounds because a similar note sold for eighty thousand pounds earlier this week. I uh, I don't know why we're laughing at this. This is a classic. <laughs> this is a classic startup strategy by uh, inferring that there is scarcity to confer value, and it's a strategy used by certain certain banks to uh, to get people to sign up for their waiting lists. Look, quite we're, effective. We're missing the point here. The new £5 note is uber cool. It, you know, I showed the kids it. Like, oh, that's really cool, Daddy. Try I, and rip it up. It's really, really cool. But I'm like you, Apple Pay or contactless or just get rid of cash full stop. It's a great new, it's a great new note. I was showing our Canadian friends. They're like, we've had that for years. Look at these ones. Like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. Literally, I was over in Canada a couple of weeks ago and they, all of their notes are identical to that type thing. And they have the Queen on as well. So like, they, have they you got checked the serial numbers? No, not at all. It's, it's it's the world's new scratch card. I'm telling you, <laughs> really? you, you get a five pound note out of the machine, and suddenly you can, you know, you might have something about you. Is there not a way we can blend this with Brexit somehow? People yes, yes, no, no, no. Give me, give me a chance. I'm sure I can do this. Okay. People are easily persuaded to do any old crazy thing, and now the crazy ha the craze has become collecting five pound notes in case they become valuable. People will believe anything. Presto, they're buying it. upside down, upside notes. I've got it. We're, we're migrating to Australia, we're changing the currency, we've turned it upside down and we're heading to Australia. I think this is going to devalue the pound further because <laughs> washing machines will destroy fewer, fewer fibres. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's working with Brexit, not against. Well, and I guess there's also a thing where this could lead to more hoarding because apparently, traditionally, if you stored uh, massive amounts of paper currency, you had to be careful of it rotting. Like you, people would actually have to spray, like you know, insecticide stuff. You speak from experience. Well, <laughs> you know? 
uh, on there like massive st- stacks of cash. But now, obviously, with a polymer five pound note, you could store, you could put it under your you mattress. Could full breaking you could, bad. You could do the full breaking bad thing, and it would be completely safe. Like a tablecloth from it, you know, five pound notes. I hope Simon's not listening to this podcast because I come home with like furnishings made of his five pound note collection. I do think there is something to be said about the fact that this is the first cheerful thing that has happened in the UK in a while, and and it it plays to quite a lot of sort of natural human tendencies to to try and find value, to try and find scarcity, to play. And, and it is quite a playful thing and it's a pretty thing. Um, and and it, it chimes quite nicely with a sort of nationalistic tune of the last few months without being in any way aggressive in your face. But what what is surprising is that it's still going on. The first few weeks, fine. But every time I open a new app, it suggests I should buy one of those and it's like it's worth five pound notes i'm not gonna pay 800 for it (laughs) thank you very much i've just come out from the states and i I like the fact our our notes are all different sizes and we refresh them or whatever else you go to the us and you know your one dollar bill is the same as a ten dollar bill and you get why they're all different sizes here it's really really neat and it's i I quite like it i'm a fan of the five pound note i shall not be hoarding or making tablecloths (laughs) (laughs) yeah similar to you leader i try and avoid cash as much as possible but uh well We'll see where we get to next. In- interesting one up next then. So we've got a, a story over on finextra.com. This is Visa tells Europe to be ready for 3D secure 2.0 by April 2018. How are we looking at this one then, Jason? Well, I was going to say, like, Freddie, you're a business that actually uses 3D secure. So for our kind of international listeners or people who aren't familiar with it, why don't you, uh, you t- tell us a little bit about it? Th- 3D Secure was probably the biggest security innovation online that we've had in the last decade. And essentially the way it works is you have to set up 3D Secure when you first hit one of these paywalls or these gates just after your purchase. So I've bought a, bought a flight. I've managed to get to the end of the process, finding the flight I wanted, and then it will stick up a white page and it will ask you to uh, enter your date of birth and your full name, which is uh, always difficult to remember, and then set a password. And that password has to be 13 characters long, uh, numbers, capital letters, you know, everything that's easy for a computer to get. Uh, And then you have to, every time subsequently, you want to make a purchase from quite a lot of websites on the internet and some on, on mobile, enter three randomly selected characters. And if you get get it right, you get to buy your flight. <laughs> if you get it wrong, you have to go through a, a stunningly simple reset process that I almost every single time have to go through. I do as well. And that's that's the thing. Is this not almost completely invalidating the point? Because of you it? miscount. Apparently, the biggest number of resets, you actually go, I've forgotten it, and it lets you do it anyway. It's because people miscount. And if you have ever seen people pulling weird faces and counting fingers, it's because they are spelling that random word to themselves exactly in misspelling. You see it around the office. You see it around people going, oh, I need God. three more fingers. That's what I really need. It's three more fingers. But, but I guess the interesting thing here is that, or the, the key thing, is that this moves liability from merchants to issuers. So if you're running a small business and suddenly someone with a fraudulent you know, card, with a stolen card, comes and buys something for you, the real owner of the card then works that out and suddenly you get this horrific thing called a chargeback that as a merchant suddenly you're out of pocket you know, in both ways. Whereas if you implement 3D Secure, then essentially the issuing bank is then uh, trying to establish the identity of the person who's using the card. 
Um, but I think there's, there's something interesting in that I guess it's a, uh, a balancing act with how annoying this is for that end merchant in terms of putting customers off and having them abandon their shopping basket. At the same time, balancing that against how many fraudulent activities that there are. And so the, the proposal here from EMVCO is for a version two of that protocol, uh, hopefully less clunky, that enables in-app purchases, that it enables it to happen on mobile. I, th- so- I think they've called it 2.0, which sounds a lot more sexy than just calling it 2, doesn't it? I'm I think like, they've, <laughs> they've clearly got a marketing department involved, haven't they? So. But how long can it last for? Isn't it going to be overtaken in no time at all by biometric or whatever else? I mean, I love some of the new apps that I go on to and it's just pay and authenticate with Apple Pay. It's as convenient as can be. I'm not a personal fan of the 13 digits because I've got 10 fingers and I always forget and it's two different words or three different words for me and I'm, I'm lost. I'm there three or four times or two or three times. It's a disaster. It's inconvenient. So it pushes me away from the whole site. Why would I do it? As somebody who can neither remember nor count often, then yeah, I'm with you. It's like it's uh, it's something that I'll keep bumping into and just keep resetting in terms of where I am. So, so uh, if, if you do get a charge back, it's not that you lose all of the money. You actually get charged by the, the payment network provider, 15 quid, every single time it happens. So you lose your goods, you lose the money, and you lose 15 quid. Triple whammy. And that's irrecoverable. If you, if you accidentally sell to fraudsters too many times, uh, you will get your 15 quid doubled to 30 pounds. Um, and if your if your uh, chargeback rate goes over a certain amount, you'll just get banned completely by the payment networks from even taking card payments Blimey. over uh, um, at all. So, so where does that leave all the various parties that are trying to push the blame onto each other, or rather the repercussions? Because I don't think anyone is directly saying that there is more that one could be doing. But we're looking into a PST2 world where the end-to-end security of the transaction is a collector responsibility, first and foremost with a custodian of the deposit, so current accounts beware, but fundamentally shared responsibility. So there's none of that passing the buck. And on top of it, you need to have biometric authentication. And on top of it, it's all kicking in next year. So the real real problem is we would absolutely love to be able to go and validate that transaction is real, but there's actually no way that we can do that. The, uh, The name on your credit card does not get sent to the bank in order to, uh, to make that transaction. We have to rely on a postcode being being correct, which means that we can't say, okay, this person's name is X and I can prove it through Y, uh, and then prove that they own that card. We just can't prove a connection to the card. We have to resort to asking people to upload a picture of their debit card uh, with the long number concealed so that we can even tell that it's that it's there it's so there's got to be a smarter way right from an outsider's perspective it seems a little bit antiquated here there surely must be a fintech person somewhere going this is how you do it here's how i'm going to authenticate immediately via biometric or whatever else or pattern somehow to say it's me but you can do it the, the methods are there the question is where does it talk to the downstream systems that hold the power to charge you and cripple you and 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 that's where that's where PSD2 could be the answer to everything or actually an extra layer of trouble. And initially, I thought that the fact that the um, security provisions are kicking in first is actually inspired. Now I'm thinking, oh, my God. But aren't we fixing the problem rather than addressing the root cause in the first place and working out how we just kill fraud full stop? 
It's true. It, it is. Yes. It's addressing the symptoms rather than the disease, for sure, in terms of where it's going. But And, and arguably, I don't think we're going to get down to this one in terms of where we are. So mixing up the lightheartedness with the, uh, with the serious nature of, uh, of the last one, moving into what we've seen about Amazon executives. This is an article over in Fortune. So Amazon executives are pleased with the results of retail bookstores so far. So we've seen Amazon, the very, very large website selling all sorts of gubbins, which I buy on a scarily frequent basis, um, have started to do physical stores and that actually they're going really, really, really well. So is this the fact that, you know, banks are probably good holding their nerve and not closing down all of their branches and doing things in the way that they should do? Or is just this just the fact that Amazon can afford these things not to be profitable? It's cultural, right? It has to be cultural. And I'm not sure what the specific stores are, but as a father of two young children, the last thing I want them to do, and one's seven, one's four, is be looking at an iPad. So I love physical books. I love the ability to walk into a store and see things. That matters when I'm looking at a, a piece of paper. Does that matter so much from a banking perspective? I'm not sure. So I'm pleased to see that they're working out. And I've seen a number of new bookstores open up around London and actually in my local village, a new bookstores open up with a coffee shop. So it's really, really great to see. If the bank branch opened up in my local village, would I be as likely to go there? I'm not sure. I think that there, there are a couple of elements that are slightly different for the US market because there the, the Amazon onslaught has been even more successful than here at driving high street bookstores out of business. Uh, here there are definitely fewer big brands, we actually have seen quite a few disappear. But independent bookstores are, are still going strong. And as Nigel says, that there are the, the sort of quirky ones. But I do think that Amazon, particularly in the States, did did the sort of Starbucks trick of of uh, essentially drowning out the, the competition and then replacing it with something else. And when you become a small monopoly, you can dictate the terms and then you can create the novelty factor of a pop-up bookstore appearing in a community and then disappearing, particularly if you can carry the Amazon marketplace prices but, with you. But I think what's interesting here, especially if you look at the image, is that the Amazon pop-up store doesn't have any books. I mean, it has what looks the like Amazon Kindles. Bookstore doesn't it looks like it has probably <clears throat> Echo. Uh, you know, that, that, that whole set of, you know, it's, it's the Amazon try the Kindle. A bit, like, my a bit like Apple stores. You know, Apple could easily sell their, their laptops and phones. Everyone knows what they look like. It's a means to how get they to go. But the experience of actually going to see one, going to try one, I think until you've spoken to an Echo, you don't really know what it's like. Mm. But and you don't walk into a bank and look at the pound note or five pound notes, your, your partner well, you might, might do. do. Yeah. <laughs> have you met Simon? It's a, it's a, it's a curation thing. Yeah. Uh, so they have a big problem. They have everything. Yeah. And they have this one tiny little window to uh, to show it to you. And it's it's on a screen. You can't, you can't interact with it. If I can walk into a store, I can really go and have a look at all this stuff and maybe there is a book in the back there and that's why they've called them bookstores or maybe they've called them bookstores <laughs> yeah, so that everyone like, writes about them going Amazon opens bookstores yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. how book. unfair you've it's destroyed all these independent retailers yeah. than book. and you have to find it and there's a prize yeah. I'm sure the only person who walks into a traditional bookstore has my coffee browses the lovely books that are there and the first thing you do is you get your app out and scan it on Amazon you go, <laughs> if it's not too much cheaper online I'll buy it in the store but if it's massively cheaper online I'll order it I'll be there in two hours Yeah, I, I think as Amazon starts to going to devices, I can see this making much more sense, to be honest with you. And actually, they've, they've done quite well, haven't they, recently, to sort of weather the storm a little bit. Because there was the, fire. Was the fire phone, which sort of died to death and sort of disappeared, didn't it? But, I, you know, I've got an, uh, uh, a Echo at home, and, and I find it fantastic. It really does make a big difference. You know, I'm using it for timers, for cooking. I'm using it for 
Uh, the kids are using it for you know, playing playing music. Jokes. Yeah, the kids the kids use it for telling them jokes and stuff as well because daddy's terrible at doing that. So, so how, how applicable is this to the the high street bank or the high street insurance broker or whatever else? What are we going to see from it? I think it kind of, for me, it sort of reinforces a little bit that actually a physical presence isn't dead, but actually the way in which that physical presence actually manifests itself needs to be fundamentally different to what it was. So the idea of a bookstore being thousands of books on a shelves, which is inventory and huge amounts of space and all of those types of things, is just not necessary. In the same way as like thousands of stores across London or whoever for a, from a branch perspective isn't necessary. You know, the, the concept of a branch needs to change, not the, the, the sort of continual defending of physical property in terms of where it is. You know? so, so the next evolution is going to be a VR experience where you walk into a, a place where you put your headset on and you go to the bank branch. Louise Vuitton is doing that with Alipay at the moment. VR in-app purchases and you can sort of walk around the Louis Vuitton um, Fifth Avenue store from your home in insert Chinese city here. Um, so I have a, a couple of, of emotional blockers in, in what we're talking about because actually I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a book lover myself and I, and I collect them and I like being surrounded by them so going to the bookstore is actually a, an aesthetic experience going to bank is not so much an aesthetic experience and and there is a, a play that Amazon because they have a, a hold on the market can go for by creating that <laughs> scarcity and novelty with the pop-up stores and God knows what you're gonna find meanwhile they know that the vast majority of their of their um, uh, customers will go onto Amazon and, and Google something. Their first port of call for any random thing they want to buy will be Amazon. And, and that behavioral element is undeniably there. The flip side is you only go to your bank because your bank won't let you do something online or in the app. And, and we were talking last time about the bank getting out of your way, right? So you will physically go out of your way to go to the bank because either your bank won't let you do something online, which most high street banks won't do, or because you are my mum and you don't know how to do it online. And then the interesting thing is how the branch chooses to interact with you, whether they sit at the other side of a table with a screen between you and do it for you, whether they sit next to you with an iPad and do it on the app, exactly the same interface as you would use. And then the second, third, fourth time you will learn. And the idea is that they won't be there anymore. Hmm. I find it interesting that we could we can go from a world where the, the branch is the kind of the epicenter. It, it is like the channel and there are other channels around it to a world arguably where digital is is the business and branches and whatever else actually just augment that in some way. They either help you transition to be using that or they provide additional services, but everything's a lot simpler you know, in the future where people are doing things digitally and then for that additional bit of help might go to a, to a branch that looks very different. Or a premium service that you want to pay extra for that you go to get yeah. uh, one-to-one contact. But there's something also interesting about the, the function branches used to do in terms of trust. You know, you have these massive the marble-based yeah. uh, sort of building with gilded uh, you know, uh, metalwork all over the place. It was like, this is a company I can trust my money to. They They look like they have a lot of cash, so... This is good. Here's I feel mine. safe. Well, who knows Look, a bank they've merger? They've got a vault at the back. Who knows a bank manager these days? I always remember growing up, my dad saying, well, you get to know your bank manager, they'll look after you. I've never met a bank manager in my life. But do, does that big marble hall, though, does that kind of give you trust? Or is it like, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it enamors trust in me these days in terms of doing it. That, that, especially in the sort of 
opulent of marble so and the whatnot, trust is that know. they're going to give your money back at some point if you've built this enormous edifice you're probably not going to leave i think that's that's <laughs> well, how it, they, they, they have yeah. assets we can liquidate you know, yes, exactly <laughs> exactly i think it's, it goes uh, beyond that though to to the very simple function of language we have gone so far down the road of, of allowing banking and insurance to become so forbidding with legalese that it is scary even to the highly educated finance savvy practitioner. You look at it and go, I'm sure I've done something wrong here. And that's an undemocratic and diminishing emotional state to be putting a person in no matter how much money they're bringing in through the door. And I really do think that the lavish environment plays up to that narrative and you go in so that someone else can have the responsibility of dealing with that forbidding language. Essentially, it's the, the fofu stuff. It's the fear of effing up is what yeah. makes most people go into these things. I'm going to keep you saying it. it. I'm going to keep saying it until it catches on. But it's, uh, it's I, definitely I think a thing. It's uh, Mary Poppins banking. I don't know if you've seen, if you've seen Mary Poppins. I love Mary Poppins. Yeah. That, I mean, that is yes. the like, that's the archetypical bank for me, isn't it? Mr. Yes. Banks is, is like the man. Yeah. Uh, that, that's how I picture it. It's that boardroom of you know, really sort of nicely dressed stuffy bankers type thing with sort of counting beans. And, and, but it hasn't been that but, way but, forever, though, is it? Now? No, but our, look at our generation. We're all the same sort of age around the table. We're all 21 or thereabouts. With good sense of humour. With very yeah. good sense of humour, yes. We'd like to meet, though. Um, go back 40 years. It was a very different thing. You, you would walk in. You would make a formal appointment. It wouldn't be an interrupt society. Now we're in the, I want an answer. I want it now. I've got a five-minute break between this meeting and that coffee. I need to do this or my wife's going to give out to me. So it's it's... The, gener the generational and the attitude to how you interact with your bank and what you're doing has changed dramatically. But but isn't that... I don't see that necessarily in a good way, though. I think that's the problem. So I think we... You know, Jason, we were talking about this yesterday with somebody, weren't we, where, you know, digitization of banks has been all on the side of the banks, as in removing costs, removing people, removing you know, physical places type thing. So actually it's just about commoditizing and making cheaper, which has actually arguably taken all of that positive experience that, you know, most human beings would actually still like in terms of doing it. So, you know, may maybe... It's, it's a time game. It's definitely a time game. It's what you're enabling me to do by digitizing it, same for insurance, whatever else. If you can save me time to do something that I don't enjoy doing or has no value to my life or it's perceived that way, mm. then why would I spend time making an appointment, going to a branch, whatever else? If, however, you said to me, I'm going to enable you to do this and focus on the outcome as opposed to the actual transaction itself, then we'd have a different conversation. But you don't get that choice. It's, a, it's that Terry Pratchett thing where, you know, government committees will spend seven minutes on nuclear budgets and three and a half hours on biscuits because everyone understands biscuits. There is a certain degree of, of acquired complexity in the entire money life cycle. Quite a lot of it is actually beyond the comprehension of any individual, which automatically becomes difficult because people have to admit they don't know something. And, and as a society, we're not very accepting of that. And I don't mean us here. I mean, generally, adults are meant to know. And then add on top of that, that people have built their entire lives doing something. And that something may be the something that needs to come out of the equation. So focusing on the things that everyone can understand. We're sort of fo focusing on the biscuits. We're digitizing the biscuits and, and focusing on the bits that are either low-hanging fruit and or... Uh, low contention, either because they are not owned by anyone strong or because they're not um, owned by anyone at all, or the ones that won't require replumbing any really big bit of, of the ecosystem. But the, the fundamental crux of the matter is we haven't looked at the hard stuff, 
because we either don't know how or don't have the courage. And the people who are affected weren't given the choice. I wasn't given a choice of how my bank would digitize because I would have asked for very different things. But I think there's also, I mean, there's the elephant in the room of the business model and the fact that opacity benefits banks. You know, that, that actually that making it more difficult to understand the use of interest rates and EAR, you know, even for, for people who, you know, understand maths and percentages, they don't know at what point that compounds and how that really works out. And that's all great. Actually, the more kind of difficult... It, there's a more fundamental this. issue, and it's education full stop, right? This is, I'll go into, but you've got elephants in the room and then high horses, and I'll go on to one around education in the school system, around what we're teaching our kids going through school about financial products. I mean, basic, you know, bank accounts, insurance products. You come out of school or university and, you know, what is it you need from an insurance policy or from a bank account? Do they actually know how they work? What's an excess? We did a study a, a long time ago where, you know, one in four people didn't know what an excess was. That's crazy. How do you get through life becoming a millennial of sort and then you, you get to the point where what's an excess? So I have a policy I need to make a claim. But then you can layer on top further opaque things that they, they shouldn't be expected to know. One of the first underwriters I met uh, said, no, we don't actually make any money selling the car insurance policy. We make all the money selling stuff like legal expenses, which we buy for 69p and sell for 29.99. I thought... Oh my God! <laughs> was was there an evil laugh at the end of that? <laughs> no, was, this is the hands. only way we can actually operate as a business. Yeah. Um, but but it, um, that you know we're, we're maybe getting a long way away from. I think we'd start talking about Amazon. Didn't we? <laughs> but it, it, it is an interesting one because that whole dynamic is set up wrong, isn't it? And actually, arguably, we just we're sort of quite complicit in that at the moment, I guess, in terms of what we're doing, because we have to be, we can't not use these products because in most instances, we're pretty much mandated to do, you know, we can't drive a car without car insurance, but we sort of gingerly step through the bear traps of these things because we maybe slightly know better and, you know, know how to play the system slightly in terms of, you know, but right, you know you have to, we should applaud the regulators in some places. I mean, they've done uh, some great stuff around know your customer, they've done stuff around package uh, bank accounts and that sort of stuff that's out there to make sure that you are not ending up in that situation where you've actually just wanted X and you end up with all these wonderful things that you'll never use. So they are they are making moves to make sure that we are not being missold and won't go into the, the, the three-letter rack or anything else. <laughs> but they are making moves to make sure that sort of stuff is protected from us. But, but are the, they going far enough? And I'll, I'll pick up on, on, on Jason's point. Fundamentally, unbundling is, is brilliant if you're a customer and absolutely a nightmare if, if you're a bank, both because it goes against your revenue structure, but also because it's actually hard. Because fundamentally, you've built an entire mountain of stuff around moments of exchange that was so tightly connected to the technology you had to deliver the thing that you had at one time decided was the best way to serve a need. And as you go back that thing, you realize that the technology has changed, the need has changed, but the secondary market has developed on top. And if you start playing around with figuring out what the need is now, hundreds of thousands of people are out of work and you don't have a business model because the thing you're selling isn't actually a thing that will need to be sold once you've done all that. I, I hear you. I think that's where you see the growth of things like micropayments, microinsurance, micro micro events in, in, in general, which is what I think the, the future is going to focus a lot on because it's no longer this broader product. It'll be back to mass personalization for the you know for the individual. So it's exciting times ahead. I think it hopefully will be. I think there's um I think that would be the future if we were as consumers deciding what we wanted to do. But I think there's probably a lot of large companies that are very 
happy to try and defend the past, aren't they, to a certain degree? But anyway, moving on to the next one, we have a story over on geekwire.com, which uh, is an awesome domain name right there. We probably one of the biggest things that happened last week was the DDoS attacks that kicked off, I'm sure. Was anybody sort of particularly affected on on this one? I saw kind of it affected various different things like Netflix and AWS and, and whatnot. But was anybody sort of well on the side of the table? Uh, both of us were affected because we use the same uh, support software, Intercom, uh, who uh, who got taken down by this. How long was it down? Uh, it was down pretty much all day, which meant that we couldn't get support requests from our customers when they had problems with their financial products. So uh, we, we got pretty upset by that. And I think I think that was the interesting thing, that just the scale of this. It wasn't a single company. It was, you know, Twitter, Netflix, Reddit, CNN, you know, you name it, it, it was taken down. Because the, uh, the attackers weren't focusing on a particular company or a particular cloud provider. They were focusing on internet infrastructure. So there's a, a service called a domain name service that when you type in www.bbc.co.uk, it goes to, a, to a, a server somewhere and brings back the IP address, like the internet telephone number of, of where that service lives. And that's what they attacked. So when you started to type in your, your URL, it, it wasn't bringing back the internet phone number. And so your, your laptop or your mobile phone or whatever did not know where to, to go. Um, and, and what was even more interesting was this wasn't somewhere, someone sitting somewhere, you know, with a laptop or a big server doing this attack. They were using what's known as a botnet, which is essentially billions of, of devices in this case. So there were webcams and routers and almost anything connected baby to Baby monitors. Internet. Yeah, baby monitors, where they had default usernames and passwords that the provider had built in. Someone had scanned the internet, found these devices, installed software, and when the time was right, you know, they clicked the button, and all of a sudden, baby monitors and networks were taking down the internet. My wife tried to blame me for it. You know, it's, it's <laughs> what were you doing? You know, what have you done? But, but I think this is a really interesting eye opener to the, the broader general public. We spend our life in technology, right? So we see all the IoT devices and the things that are happening from telematics and whatever else. This is a wonderful opportunity to say, Actually, there's a lot of stuff out there that can go wrong. And because everything's connected from your fridge to your dog to your whatever else, we should be more careful and more aware around security and cyber attacks in general, because these are just going to increase in terms of frequency right now. Having having a vested interest in this, I sort of did, did a bit of reading. And there, there are a couple of things that could have been done by some of the providers to, to prevent this, for example, using a secondary failover uh, DNS provider. Which Amazon did. So it was one thing what they turned off. DYM, yeah. the, uh, the provider after a time. So um, uh, uh, what some of the security researchers were actually saying was that this wasn't just a flick it on and unbelievably huge amount of traffic came. What, what was actually happening was that uh, a certain amount of traffic came in uh, and then it stepped up in very, very uh, defined increments as if it was trying to find the exact breaking point of the network to work out where these single points of failure that power the internet where, where where that single point of failure actually fails so that they can know in the future where to apply the pressure. That's scary in itself, isn't that's, it? It is. That's, that's oh, yeah, the, the, actually, it wasn't a billion. The, the Guardian said there were 100,000 malicious endpoints uh, creating a, an attack strength of 1.2 terabits per second. So it's essentially it's what we need to do is uh, regulate 
regulate the security uh, in your toaster to make sure that <laughs> they, they don't they don't they don't fall over on these really simple security provisions like setting a unique password for each device. But fundamentally, <clears throat> the the sort of people that. Nigel, you, you, you say would, would get a lesson from this, I think are the people who are most terrified by this, because the connected world is this thoughtless thing that is happening in the background. And I remember months ago talking to, to um, a, a, a bunch of, uh, of innocent people who all had Nest at home and, and um, explaining the very simple way in which somebody who had malicious intent could know when your children get home from school, simply by getting into your Timers. I mean, you, you, we're breaking you into, 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 into different territory about privacy. I think privacy is Well, what I was there, going right? to get at is that what has shocked most bystanders who are not personally affected was the fact that there is no direct gain for the people who did this. And this, we're so used to, to treating cybercrime the same way that we understand um, personal theft, that if you are going to try and hack into my system, you're trying to take something away from me. So the idea that this entire disastrous and destructive activity could take place with no direct and quantifiable benefit for the perpetrators is I think that the the element that has caused chills to go down the spines of quite a lot of the digitally savvy and non-savvy people watching. My entire life is connected and there are people out there who want to take it down for the fun of it. Then what am I opening myself for? I, I wonder though if it's, I, I can't imagine to your point about the increments and knowing whether the tolerance actually is type thing. There's probably a bigger game here in terms of sort of doing stuff. You know, the amount of sort of ransoms that would be, you know, put forward to do those things. It's going to, but arguably, you know, if people like AWS now have started to see that there's a potential to have failovers for doing this, then, you know, people can try and fix it quickly, can't they? It's, it's a good thing that these things are surfaced because then we can go, ah, that's a single point of failure. Vulnerability, yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess this is one of those things where it was an attack that was a big problem. But it wasn't like catastrophic take society down. And it was probably a good enough wake-up call to get people working on it. So I'm, I'm a big movie buff, right? So we've, we've basically talked about Hollywood making the world come true. So we've talked about War of the Worlds where machines are caught colds. We've talked about You've Got Mail and Amazon. And this is Die Hard 4, right? This is literally <laughs> where they take out the whole thing. Traffic lights are changing and they can shut down power stations. I mean, ultimately... That's what we're talking about, right? We're I was going to go for Mr. Robot, but I'm, I'm happy with <laughs> I, I have to say, I will look at my Nest Cam and my, you know, my sort of uh, washing machine differently when I get back, just in case it was there. So you you say good night before you do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't break Netflix while I'm asleep. <laughs> what? Um, so maybe, maybe moving on then. So we have the last story that we saw, and this is probably a, a similar to where we we sort of every so often talk about Apple. There is the ongoing debacle that is Williams and Glynn. So this is the sort of latest update is. Clydesdale makes an offer to RBS for, for Williams in, in Glynn. And it sort of seems like uh, hopefully maybe putting the, the end to this sort of long drawn out story. But um, obviously we've seen the, um, the attempt to uh, separate it from RBS, which uh, the quote in the BBC's article here is, however, the bank blamed the problem of creating a separate IT system on the cost of about 1.5 billion. Uh, I would so have definitely done it for a billion. How much does it cost to uh, start a bank? It really depends the kind of bank, but if it's like super capital light, I know there have been a few kind of people talk about it, then we're in the sort of 20, 30 million uh, sort of category. So not 1.5 billion then. You could have a few for I that. I think you right? could probably start a few for that. Yeah. So well, I mean, and when we're looking at it, I mean, Williams and Glynn is, you know, following the financial crisis, following the bailout, the European uh, sort of regulator said, right, you've got to 
divest a part of your business. And we're talking about 300 branches, 1.8 million customers worth about 20 billion with deposits of 24 billion. So that's like a challenger bank. That's like, that's a great challenger bank if you could just buy it and do something amazing with it. Uh, but obviously, like the separation has gone horrifically. Santander came and said, well, you know, we'll have a look at buying it. And arguably they've got a, they've got a good uh, track record of mm. acquiring and integrating, you know, uh, deposit takers previously. So, but they, they pulled out. Clydesdale have been there before and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, they're, they're in this now in order to, uh, to do it. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because National Australia Bank own Clydesdale, don't they? So arguably for NAB, that would be an interesting move in terms of requiring those customers and, you know, world domination and arguably moving into a, uh, you know, a quite of a innovative but uh, underserved market in terms of kind of where we are today. So we haven't seen too much coming from Clydesdale Bank yet, have we? But with an addition of another, what is it, 1.8 million customers and 300 branches and 24 billion of deposits type thing. That gives them a bit of impetus to do something interesting, potentially. It's it? like a mixed bag, isn't it? I'm sure you want the 1.8 million customers. Do you want the 300 branches? Yeah. That's like lucky dip, right? Is, you, isn't the question around, actually, does it add to my portfolio wherever you are? And, you know, if I'm looking at an organization, I'd always just say, in any world, and if you're a retailer or an insurance or a bank, you sit there and say, how many products can I get per customer, as opposed to having X number of customers in in discrete areas, which makes it costly to run. It's the age old, the world was built in seven days because there was no user base. <laughs> we have a user base. <clears throat> it's also the, the never ending game of monopoly, right? Where you're, you're actually much more pliable 10 rounds in as you're, <laughs> you're running out of options to, to, to negotiate and why they're coming back in, if not, and I have no inside information on this, but just wondering why would they come back in if not uh, with a more pliable set of tiebacks and commitments. Do you think they've gone in and said, here's a polymer five-pound note? We'll, uh, we'll, we'll take <laughs> Simon will go halves with us. He's got <laughs> three this, of them. This one's an AK-47. Give, give me the bank. Yeah. We'll, take, we'll take the 1.8 million customers for the AK-47. <laughs> we because on the aftermath of the bailout, there were quite a lot of, of, of lofty and, and well-meaning commitments in terms of keeping all the branches open. And I don't mean specifically for them. I mean across the group. Keeping the branches open, keeping certain services running the way they were running, certain commitments to the clients, certain group level uh, brand promises um, and all of those have started either taking on a spin of their own or being compromised with, through the realities of the fact that this particular relationship has been difficult. It, mm. it has it has come with a whole host of problems, some may be foreseeable, some a surprise to everyone involved. So why would you come back and try to buy what has turned out to be a problem child and I'm sure through no fault of actually the end customers if not because you think that a different kind of deal will fly. I think but, it but it's interesting almost from the total cost of ownership, if you like. Like you could offer a certain amount, but how much is this going to cost to, to disentangle? You know, arguably it's like you could get to the point where RBS has to pay someone to uh, Well, that's what I'm t- thinking, the, the endless game of Monopoly. What if the deal now, having been round the block and having skipped go a bunch of times, the deal is you unplug it and hand it over. Uh-huh. Scary. What does think this spells for RBS though? Because looking at Clydesdale Bank here, we've had so in the last year, their shares have ro- risen by 40%, uh, which is quite a good rise for a, a banking organization. But the same period, RBS has fallen by 36%. It kind of feels like, you know, 
how much closer to a real significant world-ending, life-threatening problem can RBS keep sort of getting without really, you know, changing the ways in terms of what they're doing? Well, it was. I mean, RBS was twelve fifty-seven a share in December two thousand and fourteen, and it's now at four eighty-two, at four dollars eighty-two a share. So, you know, that's a that's a third off the share price in a year and a half or two years. That's that's tough. Scary. One one last thing, and I did say that was the last one, but this one's just literally just popped up in front of me, and I, I find it quite an interesting one. So we've we've seen the ongoing problems with what is Twitter. And Twitter literally announced six minutes ago as we uh, are talking that they're going to axe Vine, the video service that they're, they're doing, because um, it says in the coming months we'll be discontinuing the mobile app um, and for no particular reason other than they just don't know what to keep doing with it. So is this like a, nobody seems to know what to do with Twitter. Nobody seems to, I, like I like it, I use it every day, you know, I've kind of, uh, it feels like one of the things that is good for really good for distribution, but nobody wants to buy it. They're shutting down bits. Are we just sort of seeing the decline of social media, really? I don't think so. I think things have come and go over the years. You look at friend feed into Facebook and stuff like that. And there's a whole host of things. You go and buy talent into the organization. Um, I'm like you. I, I love Twitter. I'm, I'm far too noisy. Thoroughly enjoy the engagement on there. You've met some really, really, really great people on there. Um, I think it's just a refocusing what they're up to. I agree. It's, it's interesting that no one's buying them though. As a, as a company that sporadically looks at digital marketing on Twitter, uh, it's it's the competition that's the problem for them. They're competing with Facebook, and an ad on Facebook can be so much better targeted uh, that there's just no way they can come close to the um, to the to, to the cost per relevant install than uh, than Facebook. And well, they can come close, but it will cost them a lot, and that that. The other side, Facebook have invested the money in gathering the data that will make their targeted advertising spooky. Hello, girlfriend of man who collects five pound notes and <laughs> likes scarves. I, I'm not as as um, they seem to be to be doing all right. I'm not concerned about their their market value, but I, I do think that Twitter is amazing for distribution. But it's always it always baffles me on the consumption side because it is it is relying on a on a very large percentage of the population that are consuming. And those behaviours can't stay static. I would expect a bigger change soon. I don't know what it is. Um, There's been talk of Disney buying them at one point, isn't there, in terms of sort of doing the it? The dragon chain. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Sales force, you know, they're not growing. They're, they're just not growing in terms of like numbers of users. It's, just, it's a strange <laughs> idiosyncratic platform. Because you've got all of these weird things that actually, if you know Twitter, like putting a full stop at the beginning of something or using a D or it, uh, product development wise, it hasn't really gone anywhere, you know, for a very long time. Whereas Facebook has iterated mm. and developed. Facebook's a monster in terms of like reach, like, like massive. And ad platforms are all about reach, you know, it's all about, all about that. But if you get the Facebook results, I think one of the stats they do, which I'm fascinated by, is the, the amount of time you spend on the platform per day or average usage time yeah, yeah. per day. And that's what's fascinating for me. I look at it and go, you know, from a, an insurance perspective, a financial service perspective, if I'm going to spend time somewhere, how do I get to that one individual that needs all these things because we know they're going skiing or, yeah, yeah. or whatever else? So there's that's sort of interesting. But equally, Twitter will give you location-based stuff as well. Facebook, I guess. it's but Pass your high horse over because I, I, Facebook have a massive opportunity by design, stealth, or human laziness to become the best place provider of identity assets currently in the marketplace because they have understood how a connected economy works from the get-go and how lazy your average um, 
digital user is, myself included, mm. and having reached the tipping point of using your Facebook credentials successfully and safely for a number of monetary and non-monetary transactions, how far would you need them to go to actually start offering a value-added service that would change both your life and the market? Whereas Twitter don't have I, that I, I get that. My, my, my big moment this week, was, was it this week or last week, they announced the PayPal integration to Messenger. I thought that was just brilliant. Absolutely. So often you go, you do your leaving present for X, can we do X, Y, and Z, and give you yeah, put £10 or £20 into the pot. I'd love to have a go, £20, yeah. Apple Pay authenticated without any of these 11, 13-digit things. Apple Pay authentication, and the money's gone. That, for me, yeah, is no, just but, convenience. Uh, but, but I agree on the identity side. In fact, uh, we were talking to... Um, the, the team around Gov, Gov. Identify the um, you know the government based the government identity scheme, and saying that actually that is not about providing ways for people to 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 give their identity for buying complex financial products that they only do once every you know couple of years or year or three months. It's actually those day to day interactions, and especially when you combine that with the kinds of problems that Twitter has with harassment and bullying and. You know, that little uh, Twitter verified little tick, you know, you could easily get everyone verified with a, a you know, with a great identity scheme uh, that solves problems of like identity online and starts to build this user base with actually a, a killer use case. Because a lot of these identity things, they just don't have like a, a great consumer killer use case. That, uh, for it. But it'd be great to dig into the metrics even further and go, actually, do we understand the age groups that use each of the platforms? Because, you know, I, I look at it and post pictures of the kids to my close family of friends on Facebook so my parents can see the kids and I haven't got to call them. I'm now saying this in public. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? You host things on that you want people to see and other sure. people that you don't want to see, whereas Twitter is 100% public and it's pretty much yeah. that. So. But your identity asset will no way compromise the privacy of what you're doing. They have done that well before. You sign on to Spotify with Twitter and it, with um, your Facebook account and it doesn't post onto your profile. Facebook Connect, genius. Just convenience. Click, done, in, and off you go. But th- is this the... You know, the difference is Facebook essentially is a destination, isn't it? Whereas uh, Twitter is kind of like just a directory, right? You know, it's kind of, it's a stream of things to go and look at other places, whereas Facebook is a time spent engaging with content. And even more than that, it becomes a connector from a business perspective to other businesses. They have worked out how to build an ecosystem around themselves where you don't even need to go there for them to benefit from your footfall. You, I, I don't have a Spotify Login. I I logged in with Facebook a hundred years ago. What does that mean? It means that it keeps my household honest because I can't share my account, um, which is genius. I didn't even think about that when I did it. It also means that every time I listen to music, I have actually given Facebook a kickback, even though I I didn't log on. So they've worked that out, which Twitter hasn't. Well, I say Twitter is walking into a coffee shop full of public people, and Facebook is if I go around for dinner party because you've got friends on one and you walk into a general place on the other. It's you know, you can have a conversation on, on Twitter. I've met some really, really fantastic thought leaders from around the world, all dealing with the same issues that we have in our territory or our industry, doing some great things. Very true. And on that note, let's uh, hear from our sponsors and get back and talk about insurance next. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. 
Awesome. And thank you very much for everybody for coming back. We have a very interesting topic and one very close to my heart now, actually, in terms of having spent a bunch of time working in the insurance market and uh, seen everything from uh, retail insurance in terms of uh, the the motors, the pets, the travels through to annuities and health insurance. There's quite a big spectrum out there, but it's one that um, it sort of feels like is kind of catching up slightly with the times. I think in some ways, insurance is probably more advanced than banking with regards to the disruption that people have actually sort of seen coming into the market. In other ways, it's actually a a lot further behind in terms of uh, what has been done and how it's been done, really. But but there's a few interesting topics out there that maybe get us going a a little bit. The first one was actually on the FT.com. So this is insurance sector is worried as insurance tech starts to cozy up for customers. So this is a, a general sort of fear by big insurance companies liking the way that they've done things forever really uh, starting to get competition. Jason, what's your thoughts on this one? Well, I think there's even a quote in this FT article by Nigel Walsh, a partner at Deloitte. So <laughs> I don't think I'm probably qualified to to, uh, to talk about this one. Uh, well, so I, I, I am like you, I'm absolutely passionate about this one. And it's, it's, it's probably one of the most exciting times for insurance right now, given all the change, given what we've seen in the fintech industry and how fintechs have started to dis- disintermediate banks and banking itself. The underlying principle of insurance, though, will fundamentally not change. We are still there for a promise to pay. If something goes wrong, we are there. And more importantly, we are mandatory in many cases. As you know, as we said earlier, you can't drive a car without car insurance. You can't own a home without certain home insurances or, or, or other things like that. Equally, if you're going putting a ship across a, uh, a shipping lane, you need insurance. So there's certain things in that space. This article specifically, though, is around cozying up the customers. And this is the easy part about back to the, the bank branch conversation. If you can choose to engage differently than you do today with an insurance organization and get it right, then lots of these insure tech startups are starting to work out how you better engage and do what the customer wants and in the way they, they want to. So buying insurance, I remember growing up with the yellow pages and going through line by line, calling them up one by one going, that's this price, that's that price. That was you know, changed dramatically when the aggregators came. Nigel, you're 21, remember? <laughs> of course, sorry. It was, it was, it was, wasn't that long ago. The, but it's changed dramatically, and the, the, the old quote that soft was eating the world is so true right now for insurance because so much can take place about breaking down each and every point within the insurance interaction point for the consumer. And lots of this sort of stuff is focused on consumer. Let's not forget the the masses insurance market, the commercial industry, the health industry, and everything else. But ultimately, here relevance and convenience are king. How do we make it more relevant and most importantly, as convenient as possible to do business with insurance organizations? I I find this article's title completely ridiculous. Insurance sector worried as insured tech startups cozy up to customers. I.e. we haven't been cozying up to customers. We've been keeping them at a safe distance for at least the last 20 years in in uh, the sector we focus on. So, so, so if this headline is like, you know, abusive relationship, <coughs> husband worried about somebody lo- actually looking after his wife. Exactly. Like, is, that, is that the sort of uh, approach? Exactly. So as Nigel was saying, the, the insurance companies are absolutely nowhere near their customers. They very rarely even speak to them. Uh, the only time that they usually interact or engage is when that customer needs to claim some claim some money back, and even then, not not all the time. So uh, a lot of the time, they'll be farmed out to a claims management firm. The insurance companies uh, been uh, been completely disintermediated by price comparison websites, set of brokers, and search engines. 
to the extent that they should be worried that other people are going to close you up to their customers because they they don't even they don't even know what they look like. So, so why, why haven't we um, why haven't we seen more of a radical change within insurance? Right, you know, obviously the you know I was sitting in Aviva when aggregators man, this is dating me as well in terms of doing stuff, which is quite terrifying. But yeah, I was in you know Aviva when aggregators started really sort of penetrating the market, and affiliates were a lot more a bigger deal than they are now as, as well. You know. And, and arguably, you know, despite all of that disruption and the fact that most people's journey to buy insurance now does start with an aggregator, you know, you struggle to find many people that, that don't. They haven't really woken up to changing anything beyond just the way in which you acquire customers, right? You know, I, have a, I have a quite flippant theory. Okay, go on then. This is <laughs> going to be fun. Flippant theories. Strap um, yourself in. Uh, in 2008, uh, lots of bankers got fired and they needed something to do. So they all went into and so they all started up fintech businesses, right? But there was no corresponding culling of jobs in the insurance sector. Okay, they just sort of bounced along the bottom, absolutely, you know, fine. So you didn't have this influx into the market of people who needed something to do. Mm. And insurance has sort of over the last decade or so, nearly decade since two thousand eight, watched what's happened in 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 the finance area and gone. Well, we should be. We should be doing something like this, and you're starting to see. Now. I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're sitting back on the laurels. Some, some would argue that you could say they they are slower to take off than others because of the way in which they interact. But we talked about Amazon earlier, and books and, and all that sort of stuff. It's for me. It feels like a pull by the consumer to go. Actually, we want to we want to change our relationship with you. But equally, we're not all sitting around the table here going, I want to speak to my insurance company twice a day because it's a really fun thing to do. Equally, I don't want to speak to my bank twice a day because it's a fun thing to do. But if we can change how insurance is bought or sold, that's a big question, right? Is it, do you buy insurance or is it sold to you? Depends on the, on the category, of course. If we can change that dynamic and make sure it's frictionless and friction could be any point at all, <laughs> walking into a branch, making an appointment, trying to speak to a call center agent, whatever that is, if we can make it as frictionless as possible, you've got a great opportunity to be there side by side, shoulder to shoulder with a consumer that actually then start to build up trust. That sounds almost romantic, the way you put it. But realistically, I think the truth of the way I, I see it is, is is in the unglamorous space between the two, slightly dismissive and, and slightly um, hopeful areas that you described. And there's some middle ground. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> kind of dreary middle ground. Because on the one hand, quite a lot of the insurtech conversations are conversations that sound familiar to those of us who are in fintech, not because we lost our jobs in banking, thank you very much, um, but because it was for reasons that we got into in the first half of the show, a place where knowledge met technology. And for whatever reason, that knowledge didn't leak out of the insurance industry into the, the, the space where creativity could take place. And it could be because people weren't sacked or, or it could be because people didn't have the imagination to go beyond it. But now it's happening and it's happening from people within the insurance industry, but it's happening from people outside of the insurance industry. But everyone is pretty much replicating the process. So there are a couple of things that are exciting. And one thing that seems to be potentially hugely exciting, but but not quite happening yet. The exciting things are, as, as has been touched, and I'm sure will be touched again around microinsurance, the fact that me as a consumer, I will genuinely think about whether my wet iPhone is worth the pain of calling my insurance company. And most often it's not. So you actually cough up the, the cash rather than go through the pain of dealing with them. So the minute that you have a user interaction promise that is less dehumanizing, 
people will change in droves, particularly for the areas where you don't have a legal requirement to be insured in a particular way. Um, I think the regulatory element will eventually start shifting. There are some patterns that the insurance industry is shifting in ways very similar to the banking industry, and the regulator was quite famously a barrier to entry for a very long time in fintech, and it's not the case anymore. Agreed. What will happen in the insurance space is, is, uh, is an interesting question. But the one thing that um, I am seeing from a financial services perspective is that quite a lot of what was considered value additive activity isn't. People are not willing to pay for quite a lot of things. And insurance is coming up uh, time and again, uh, coming up as a, as a viable business model where the whole idea of insuring against the unusual, the aberration, the, the thing that is a break from, from patents. So if you're a commercial entity that engages in cross-border trade and uh, FX transactions are part of your day-to-day function, why not having insurance against high volatility? Why pay for your... So all of a sudden, insurance is finding itself in this, in this point where it might be uh, having one up over banking because there is space for expansion. Every time we have this conversation about banking, it's shrinking margins, shrinking value spaces, shrinking interactions and insurance. It's like, hello, utilities. I want to talk to you. Hello, banking. I want to talk to you. And yet, you're not talking to them. There's, go there's, talk there's, to there's them. There's a theme here, right? How do, I, how do I go online and search for my utility provider at home? I go to the comparison website. How do I do the same for my insurance products? I go to a comparison website. We're starting to break things down based on price or cost without understanding the actual value that they provide. And we don't always compare apples and apples, which drives me insane because you can go into an aggregator and go, that's the cheapest provider at the top without knowing the full policy wording, whatever else. And you know, you go to any, any of the conferences that, that we attend on a regular basis and you say, who's actually read their terms and conditions? Even in, insur- in, a, in a room full of insurance people or banking people, the number of hands that go up is really, really small. So we cannot expect consumers or otherwise um, to actually read those. It's, 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 the expectation is there that you will pay. I don't care if it's my fault or not. I'm insured. I have coverage. You're going to pay. Nick, uh, Nick Jenkins from Moonpig, who is who's now there. It was Dragon, actually put a button in his terms and conditions of moopick.com saying, click here and we will give you £5,000. And nobody <laughs> ever Nobody read all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I, but I, I just want to zoom out a little bit because I think we're, I mean, we're talking very much again on that customer edge, like the aggregator tables, that customer end. But when I was, I was at a, an insurance community event a few months ago and there was a talk around uh, why there isn't, a new full stack insurer, you know, and the the kind of traditional ways of doing business. I mean, fintech tech in general loves inefficiencies. It loves those th- deals that are, are you know worked at at the pub or brokers talk to each other because suddenly you know with transparency and reach and networks you can bring great efficiencies. So a bit like the talk around corporate and transaction and the 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 bigger end of banking. Are we seeing InsureTech reach into that area as well, or is it just so, the consumer level? So it's happening. I know, I know uh, several insurers that are getting licensed or have just got licenses. Metro Mile just raised one hundred ninety-two million dollars, bought a carrier in America, and uh, there are some guys here doing doing similar. Essentially, the way it works with insurance is you need the data first, 
rather than okay. rather than start and then get the data. And so it's easier to start as a distributor, build up the data advantage, and then use that data to go and raise capital. It's sort of mathematically correct. So you reach back at the stack from the yeah. From the front. You have to start. You have to start the distribution. Well, there's plenty of examples of, I won't call them insurtechs because they started before the term was kind of there, but of new organisations that were formed out of businesses that had friction. So you look at the the guys that got rid of the brokers and moved straight to the phone and they went from the phone to the internet. Well, that's just evolution of the process that exists today. I'm not sure if you're saying, is there someone out there revolutionising insurance? I don't think there is today. Is there people out there evolving it in step by step and, and in some cases some big steps? I think there are. And in, in my mind, you see lots of people out there that start with tech to make the engagement and the user experience much, much better and actually missing out the primary insurer completely and jumping straight to get my capital from the reinsurer, be it a telematics provider, be it a uh, health insurer, whatever else that says, you know what, I don't need the guys in the direct piece anymore. I've got the ability to engage through whatever it might be, tech, uh, insights, IoT, you know, back to the conversational security and get my capital and capability and balance sheet from the guys that have got it all today. Which, it, which makes perfect sense. However, being the grey hair in the room, we've seen this process in fintech where the, the, the activity and, and energy came into the retail side because that's what people recognise as consumers and that's where traction with the customer will come faster. And then the trap for most companies and for the longest of times is to build faster horses. And the, the market doesn't need faster horses. And I've seen, much to Freddie's point, I've seen a couple of amazing sort of congregations of people building full stack insurance. But those companies look like fresher, slightly leaner versions of their older brethren. They're not doing anything radically different. Agreed. They're not going back to the basics of the value chain. They're not saying, do I need this bit? And and, and I'm not saying that the banking industry has done this properly, but it's increasingly realizing that that's the main question. Now, I will go back to my earlier point because I really don't think that insurance is only comparable to, say, utilities or banking because of, of the downsides. I think you, insurance is the only traditional industry that has growth potential. Because realistically, people are, in, in particularly in developed societies, are increasingly unlikely to want to pay for electricity and any other type of utility past five years. And this is a realization that most utility companies have come to. This is a realization that Tesla came to quite a long time ago. And what you're looking at is the possibility of a business model that says, I will pay for insurance against disruption of service. Now, as a model, that is very familiar to the insurance industry. And yet I have seen no insurer offering to partner with your your energy providers. And that hasn't even gone down the micro-insurance opportunities of the fact that you will now know that my fridge is reaching end of life and you can offer me a new one. There are loads of ideas, but the the, the viable business model execution tomorrow morning. I I think there's plenty of examples out there. You know, we are genuinely, and I I will be on my high horses, I'm passionate about the industry and the fact that, you know, Lombard Street is here and it was all started in the coffee houses of London. You look at the the guys at the boot camps in St. Catherine's Dock and they took uh, hundreds and hundreds of companies that they interviewed, 10 people went through it. Many of those companies now have been funded or have, have had an investment that actually insurance is almost the byproduct and they're offering a different service completely. So I think people are starting to disintermediate or engage differently. And as a back to the bought versus sold argument, if you've got service X from this new insurtech startup, the byproduct happens to be insurance for the transaction that you're going to do. Be the it companies you mentioned are all um, either variations of health tech or micro insurance. 
So they're still at the front end. They're still not tackling the business model. I think they will get there, but well, we I, haven't seen I, it yet. I, but are there I not some insurers who are, because uh, uh, again, this conversation I had with the uh, insurance community was about a really interesting shift from that the business model of you give me the money and then I try and work out ways that I'm not going to give it to you if there's a problem. More towards, actually, if you you give me money on health insurance, if I can make sure you're healthy, then I'm less likely to pay. Or I'm less, if I can help you make sure your car is more secure or that the route you take to work doesn't go through a crime hotspot. Do you think there's a move in the industry to sort of away from that I'm just going to work out ways of not paying you towards so, towards helping people reduce risk and therefore reduce payouts. So there's a there's a genuine. So I, I don't think the people I speak to on day in day out basis are there to pay out genuine, valid, non fraudulent claims. No one's there to go let's, let's protect, protect it and not pay you. They're, they're generally there to help you through crisis, be it flood or whatever else. Um, it's the shift to the business models that you talked about. How do we get to actually peer to peer, which is a a buzzword specifically in fintech. I, I don't see it scaling in insurtech. And I, you know, there's been lots of talk about Guevara or Lemonade and everything else. There's some huge numbers that talk, uh, talked around. I don't see how it's going to scale yet. That's not to say it can or won't scale. I just haven't seen it just yet. But that's a change in the business model. But let's, let's defend the banker for a second. No banker sits there and says, I will make Johnny's life a misery. The interaction doesn't become pleasant for Johnny as a result. So no insurance is out with, with mean intent. However, the user experience and the reason why there is any challenge around the space is that Johnny actually hates dealing with his insurance company, even though Johnny on the other side, who's an employee of the insurance company, starts with best intentions. However, the processes and all the rest of it. So, so I think... Um, you're right, and yet it's an irrelevant fact because intention doesn't always translate to good user experience. But, the, but just, just on that, though, because there's, there's sort of a chicken and egg here, isn't there, to a certain degree? Actually, are the public getting what the public wanted in the fact that actually using aggregators, commoditizing the products, only making selections based on uh, price has led to insurance being so heavily commoditized that you can't tell... A company I've never, you know, people will buy a, an insurance policy just on the price, not really on what it is, because it's just a tick in a box in terms what, of doing. What do you find, Freddie, with cover? So I, I'd like to address the peer to peer thing just in advance of saying that. I think uh, it will be peer to peer once the peers are providing the capital rather than, uh, rather than some other institution coming, coming up with the. Coming up so with there's a vested interest? Yeah. Uh, and that's a two-sided marketplace, right? Guys with the capital, the guys looking to uh, mitigate risk. We see we're seeing a load of different behaviours that are really interesting. So, to give you some context, Cover sells uh, hours of car insurance uh, at the moment, so that you can borrow a friend's car, but in uh, in the near future, so that you can uh, insure your own car more flexibly. The, the the top the top thing that we've seen coming back at us is that people love to be able to tap twice to buy an insurance policy. They absolutely hate the complexity of purchasing just just an annual motor insurance policy where you go to your search engine and you choose your one of five price comparison websites and then you put all of your details in and then you have to go to the insurer's website, put some more details in, put your credit card details in and then and then you finally get an insurance policy at the other end. Whereas that, that, that's not necessary, but that's the sort of that's the start. That's the hygiene level right. before you start moving up the stack to well, how can we change the product to give you say more control over 
over what you, what risks you're taking. You can choose to take risks that you otherwise wouldn't have. We have people saying to us, coming back to say, saying to us that I was able to drive my neighbour to A and E because of you guys. You're the fifth emergency service. Was something that actually came back to us today. We we're really excited by. Uh, and then and then f- f- further along the stack, you have uh, you know uh, what has this enabled me me to do socially? Like, am I in the pub and somebody's Inebriated. getting uh, <laughs> getting a little bit too drunk? And you know what's more illegal, driving drunk or driving uninsured? Uh-huh. So th- those are the effects we're seeing. Uh, and, I, so some of, and this is these are all still friction points for me because we're going to get to a stage where you you get in the car and it recognises a it's you driving and b it's someone else's car and it says on your screen on the car and you've got some big fancy screens these days would you like to ensure this journey and if you say no to it the car won't start so the whole these are all how do we remove each and every one of those friction points and we're still at the age of back to the articles title about cozy up to customers if you're that person trying to do something that's mandated to have a policy. And there's a friction point, how do you make it as easy as possible? But it is a business model question because currently cars know it's you because you have a a card operating it. And if you have multiple drivers, um, you have multiple cars. Your phone knows it's you and the GPS of the car and the GPS of your phone are overlapping for longer than a few minutes and you're sitting on the left or the right and the car knows that. So actually the technology layers, you know, the the car has an IoT presence, your phone is geolocating you and your identity is in there with multiple layers of authentication. So actually the tech you need is all there. Stitching it together is 98% of the way there. I just made that up. But monetizing it and actually coming to a, a, an understandable and comfortable deal with a car manufacturer who still owns all the car data and my, my you know, phone carrier and all the rest of it, that's your challenge. And we are living in this hugely interesting time where the technology is there and we're sitting around looking at it, hoping it will go away because our business models are of a different era, entirely analog, and people who are reporting quarterly um, either banking or insurance boards tend to behave the same way, right? You need to, to have your results coming in quarterly. And you're looking at this technology that allows you to reimagine everything. And you're not, your brain and your business are not wise so, so for it. I'm almost a shameless plug. I actually wrote something called Frictionless Insurance in a Land of Utility. And you've just described the, the, the two things that matter most to me. One is there's friction that. points. And two is I want to buy everything as I need it and I don't want it when I don't want it. So if I'm not going to be using my skis, I don't ski by the way, but if I'm going to be using my skis, then don't insure them. Or if I'm in the car and, and um, I'm driving to work on a regular commute that I do six days a week or five days a week or whatever else, I need to be able to understand what that journey is. Six and days a week? He's hard working for the rest of us. It's hard work. It's hard work. Um, but all that, that's all data that we need to make much better use of. All these things at the endpoints, they're lovely and they're interesting, but they're not the relevant fact. The relevant fact is all that data is sitting there and coming at us thick and fast. How do we leverage that in whatever sector of the insurance world we're in to drive a better outcome for the consumer, the corporate or otherwise? But you and I both know that actually the crux is how do we make money doing it? Because how you leverage that data technically, check. How do you leverage to, de- to deliver value to the customer? Check. How do you leverage it to deliver value to the customer and allow the customer to imagine further value? Check, check, check. How do you, established service provider, make money doing that? Well, that is a sticking point. And I I think that's the problem, isn't it? I think arguably insurance is in a... Insurers are in a better situation than banks because they've got much bigger protection, right? You know, I think from an insurance perspective, it's like fintech starting in mortgages. 
really difficult to just get into disrupting mortgages because of all of the balance sheet requirements in terms of what you're doing. But you know, on the on the other hand of things, they're in a, a worse situation because actually any dramatic changes that they they need to to do fundamentally are going to be affecting not only their technology stacks but the proposition that they want to implement in. They need all of these partnerships, all of these things, which inherently is completely an alien to them. You know, partnering and working with third parties is not in the interest of a large company defending a very large revenue model that actually makes me lots of money, thank you very much, type thing. So for now, right? For now. And if you look at if you look at insurance over the ages, years and years and years ago when ships came into port, you'd you'd buy an insurance policy or you'd have something underwritten that would be there, you know, after the event. So the ship's gone down, they'd ring the bell, it's there for you after the event. Go closer to time is kind of there at the event with the advent of technology we talk about IoT and baby models and stuff like that how do we move it from um, a claim, a great claims experience which is what differentiates people today to a proactive risk manager if I said to you hey don't drive that route or you know Freddie's going to give you insurance but actually the insurance is the byproduct we're going to give you the best journey and the safest journey from point A to point B which might be five miles longer but there's lower risk for you getting there and damaging the car and being inconvenienced for three weeks while it's repaired mm. so it's it, being a proactive risk manager that's key does does that disruption though lead us to quite a, a weird place and I know we, we spoke about this on um, the episode where we spoke about I think it was 110 in terms of artificial intelligence maybe the problem with, with insurance is actually it's buckets you know, we, we get put in various different buckets of risk and actually what we all want to be massively done is in, in my entirety of life is be treated like an individual, not just like a, a random group of person type thing. But really does, don't want that. But does that, does <laughs> that can, actually I can tell lead you, to tell really you bad behaviour? That is the opposite of what you as a consumer want. Well, it's what an insurer Unless you're a gay man, in would, which case you absolutely want it. Uh, no, but seriously, the buckets are, are very heavily skewed towards certain demographics. And if you what belong I'm saying to any is, others... What I'm saying is that if you are drilled down to as your risk, it, it removes that... Uncertain, that layer of uncertainty that underpins the entire system. Agreed. And what I am saying is that those demographics and differentiators of risk are, are over time and of a particular demographic, and you have life insurance shooting through the roof if you're a gay man, no matter how monogamous or stable your love life. Therefore, depending on who you are as an individual, going back to sort of Rawlsian veils of impartiality, you might actually very much want that to be changed. So, so now, I am not a gay man. So hang on, so if you're a gay man, you get... Your life insurance is quite a lot higher because really? you're considered higher risk. Wow. How do they prove this? What's the... Like, is well, if you're in a civil partnership, tables? you're screwed. All right. Literally. Really? How do we back away from this one? <laughs> no, but it, but, it, but I'm, I'm with Freddie on this. If you went down to the mass personalization for a segment of one, which we all think is brilliant, where you've got individual advertising, whatever else, great for advertising... Do I want to be in a individual risk if I'm living on the coast or near a flood area and the risk is all mine? Absolutely not. That's why we've got things like Puri and everything else. Once you, once you, I, once you, go, to a, once you go to a segment of one, for some people, it, two the premium that becomes the price separate. of replacing the carpet. So, no, so no, no, no. Once no. you get down to a segment of one, the premium becomes, for some people, the exact price of replacing all the carpets because it's going to happen. Yeah, but you're conflating two categories that are non-conflatable in terms of public policy. One is collective responsibility for national... Um, distribution of natural resources. So from a government policy perspective, flooding is not your responsibility, Bobby. becomes a matter of carpets. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm talking about very literal carpets because we have gone down to 
segmentation of one. Now, in terms of digital diversification of experiences, you tend to have people with slightly more um, varied lifestyles being early adopters. Why do I like my my banking apps. I like them because I live out of a suitcase. I travel all the time. A digital interaction with money, with currencies and with my bank suits my lifestyle. Somebody who walks down the road and their office is next to their branch and buys lunch from Bobby down the road who doesn't take card isn't as interested in the digital revolution of banking. So taking that to its logical conclusion, we can't conflate the things that are a matter of public policy and the distribution of, you know, yeah, do I have a responsibility for paying a disproportionate amount of tax because I live in a remote village of Scotland? Essentially, that's what you're looking at. And to regulate it then, it says you then, cre- oh, then, then you create a, a group of people to which insurance becomes unaffordable yeah. and by default you make the excuse but you have them. those people, you're just used to having them and I can't believe that we're turning this now into a, into a a sort of political issue, but fundamentally but, we're but so no, no, used to I, insurance. I, I see this is a it's a capital capitalism yeah. issue. Absolutely. That actually, if you're you know, are people is insurance about pooling risk against about around big heterogeneous groups, or is it you know how heterogeneous or homogeneous is this thing? Because I might love the fact that I live a healthy lifestyle, I don't smoke, I exercise, and therefore my health insurance drops because the more you find out about me, the more healthy you think I am. Whereas the guy next to me on the tube who's 17 stone, smokes and has, you know, real likelihood of diabetes might not be able to, in, in, you know, to I mean, we, we are the ultimate numbers game, aren't we? At, at the end of the day, it really is the ultimate numbers game. If it was back to a, uh, a political debate, which it's definitely not, we wouldn't build houses and floodplains. Yeah. So. We've got to fall, but fall but the, I do but think it, it does become a political debate, and without wanting, I'll go back onto my high horse. <laughs> you know, fintech went through the discomfort of challenging the sacred cows uh, a long time ago, and yeah. and we were as protective of what we knew as as I feel this to be now, and and I am not defending one particular example because. It is personal. I am defending it because it is stark. Because we're talking about a 10% chunk of the population that had bigger fights to fight rather than insurance profiling, but that they they are disadvantaged just from the get-go. And all I'm using it to highlight is that what we have taken for a very long time for granted as the way we do business is up to be challenged. Because to David's point earlier, maybe for me, as an average city dweller, being treated as an individual would actually increase my premiums because I travel too much, because I have an insane number of books, which in, in increases fire hazards and all the rest of it. And I would find myself paying more. That does not mean, however, that from a usability perspective and from what the digitalization revolution will bring to the table, we won't have to face the assumptions we made in Victorian times that no longer apply. And, and the discomfort what, of that journey is what banks have been going through for the last four years. I get it. I, but that's what this article is going back to. They're closing up the customers. They're picking up the easy parts that are better to engage on. So, for example, when I'm buying stuff, when I'm interacting on a claim or whatever else, these insure techs are making it easy to engage the insurance organizations without necessarily always dealing with the bigger issues. It's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. And they're making the evolutionary piece better and better and better. Whether it's a total loss going from 16 weeks to two weeks or whatever else it might be, they're making that engagement piece and the bit that actually touches the customer, which we've been traditionally pretty bad at, as, as Freddie said, it's a claim, it's a mid-term adjustment or it's a, a renewal. There's just three points of contact over, an, over a year. It's not a very exciting time. Whereas at least banking is transactional. 
but I guess you know, moving back to Freddie and cover and buy the hour insurance, like. What's the stack behind that? Because surely, like a you know a traditional insurer knows the product, knows what to sell you, knows the whole sort of you know it's there for a year and we can do it. Yeah. Like, how does that that work behind the scenes? Behind the scenes, um, we if you can share, we host. Uh, well, we have a platform that hosts an insurance model okay. that basically says how much that how much that price is going to be. Yeah. And, uh, and you come to us, you enter your details. We go to third parties and get. Other details. And the third parties are happy to insure individuals for, for hours, or is this aggregated up in, in some way? No, so uh, we have uh, single insurers selling okay. selling you that, that risk. What, 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 what would be priced as an annual insurance policy is, is taken right down to, to, to the hour level. Uh, and uh, when, so you, when you enter your details, you, you get a price for one, uh, 172 hours. And so did you push them to down to that new yes. type of yes. thing? Yes, that t- it took a while, it took a year of uh, talking to lots and lots of motor insurers to try and understand. Uh, what we did was we try trying to understand all the pain points that they they had uh, around selling any type of insurance. We said, well, because we're doing it on mobile, we can we can you know take a selfie we can take a picture of the driving license we can uh, we've got your location so we we can we can control against all these aspects that you're really worried about we, you know where, where when you buy an hour of car insurance with us you take a picture of the front of the car so we can we can layer on these anti-fraud devices these KYC devices to say well now we can strip out a lot of that fraud that you were getting at Elsewhere from from other providers, and uh, just deliver you a sort of a, a clean risk. And it, t- it t- took quite a while to uh, get get the first underwriter over the over the line with that. No, it's, it's it's interesting because it's I could see as somebody who owns a car that sits still for half the week type thing, I could see me using that depending on what the premiums were of, of doing it. But it does it feels like it's solving that front end problem, doesn't it? I guess the the fintech stuff we we saw lots of fluff at the front end yeah. um, in, in banking and actually I guess the fundamentals that we're still yet to see is the distru- uh, disruption in product isn't it and this is this is I, I guess chunked up what was sold to me in 365 days into hourly sort of setup so you're you're doing a bit of the front end and a bit of the back end aren't you? Yeah so a lot of our innovation is not what you've actually been able to see it's building a system that's able to report to lots of different insurers uh, in a way that they can ingest directly rather than going through any intermediaries. Uh, that was uh, that was probably one of the biggest things we did. Uh, I mean, your use case is actually very interesting that you, you volunteered that because the current product we have at the moment allows you to borrow a friend's car. We are uh, a few weeks away from uh, uh, going live with beta testing for a new product that allows you to insure your own car by the hour and uh, you pay a subscription it stays insured on the side of the road and then you insure your own car by the hour so that I'm uh, not sure I like my neighbour enough to start lending in my car if I'm well sure. that, <laughs> I don't like my wife it. you don't have to lend it in order to uh, in order to benefit from lower insurance premiums is, is, is there a demographic that's really interesting are we looking at millennials are we looking at baby boomers is, is there a difference between people that want this sort of stuff compared to someone like me who's used to a, a, no longer owns a car and have them for five years now but people that would have a blanket policy because it's just easy and convenient so there are uh, uh, there are a million and a half third cars in this country and half a million fourth cars and half a million fourth cars yeah. wow uh, and by definition they just don't get driven uh, uh, but, but uh, the interesting about them is that they are paying these full 
annual insurance premiums that are priced on the basis of uh, an average mileage because when you enter mileage into your price comparison website you don't get much fluctuation because everybody lies which means that these guys who just aren't driving it's, uh, are subsidizing everybody else to drive around a crash um, we, we don't think that's right is there also a, um, a kind of uber angle on this in terms of the kinds of insurance you need for if you were going to be an uber driver yeah uh, so um, uh, We've talked to Uber and uh, a couple of the other guys. It's it's really difficult. Government are actually mandating at the moment that Uber drivers need to be insured annually, uh, which is going to really rock the Uber model because they rely on a lot of part-time drivers, students, yeah. um, people working two or three jobs who can only do it a few hours a week and use it to supplement their income. Gig economy, right? And we've been we've been sort of racking our brains to think of ways around this around this problem for these guys, but uh, at the moment we haven't come up with a solution. So can I go back to your earlier point, because it's very, very interesting. What happens to capitalization? Uh, what happens if you are hugely successful and you become not only the prime provider, but also the model for your competition and you eat everybody's lunch and we shift to your own model? Now, there are quite a lot of setups out there where the people who pay but don't use subsidize the rest of the community from your average gym membership to quite a lot of other. Does that mean that your premium will go up. It will be more democratic, but it will suck a little bit more. Everybody else's premium will go up if we're very successful. Because I, and, and the reason I'm picking up on it is not just to out you, but because there's quite a lot of business model um, innovation that we see around these fintech and shortech world, whereby you differentiate yourself, you become more democratic, you allow your early adopters to capitalize on that differentiation, but to scale, should you get scaled up, everyone is more democratic and a better person, but a little worse off. And I don't know that your users are buying into that because they don't necessarily realize it. My, uh, it's my opinion that you will stop driving for the last time, everybody. It will because insurance will become too expensive to drive a manual car. It won't because you want to or it's more convenient. It'll be because it'll cost tens of thousands of pounds to drive around. It'll be a luxury, will it? The reason the, the re rich will, the super rich that will. The reason is it, it, once you start a self-driving fleet on the road, uh, a little-known thing uh, outside insurance circles, but uh, when you are crashed into by somebody else, i.e. a non-fault claim, your insurer will, will make money from that. That's a profit center for them. Uh, so when you have a fleet of vehicles on the road that uh, are by definition always non-fault or much more often than the other, the others, uh, you will end up with this massive profit center driving around. You'll have reinsurers competing to take the entire fleet so that they can uh, suck, suck cash out of every manual driver's that the self-driving model is quite interesting for me generally because I think that goes back to the whole concept of actually the, the the liability shifts from individual liability to product liability. Everyone's talked about that, but actually it's the, it's the bit on top. It's the icing on the cake. I park the car in the local supermarket and I get dinged or I get scraped by a trolley or whatever else. Who's covering that bit? Because the car's sat in a car park, it's not driving, there's no one in control of it. It's a genuine event that you may want cover for. And that's why I think you will end up with lots of micro-insurance policies that say, actually, give me an hour cart menu of things I want to cover myself for and no things I don't want to cover myself for. With our Cover Flexi product, that would be covered. 
So everything that is not related to driving, for example, if there's a hailstorm and your, all of your windows get smashed, then that would be covered under the policy, but you wouldn't be covered if you were actually driving unless you bought a few hours to a day of insurance. It, uh, CoverFlex is really for people who don't drive that often. They have that fourth car on the uh, on the driveway. They need it for you know, a day a month. So, um, so what about... Um, so that's an interesting point, though, that you made, Nigel. So at the point where cars are driving themselves, where do we see car insurance going particularly? Do we think actually this is a, a bit of a ticking down clock that actually the insurance sector from a car insurance perspective ceases to exist or do we think that the, actually the, the UK you, car you insurance have a, you have a differentiator uh, model where your insurance um, service can be tied to the depreciation of the asset backed by the car so you you have the the creativity angle where you can say well the car drives itself but it's out on on UK financing, and you can actually have insurance on the depreciation rate. It's speculative, sure. and it's it's insuring against potential speedier depreciation. And I do think that once insurance breaks through the stalemate of this is familiar, I'm going to give it a new lick of paint, but I'm going to stick with it. It has more scope for new new value. Than banking does. We'll, we'll find we'll we'll find new opportunities. I think it's going to change dramatically. The UK traditionally is wedded to home ownership and car ownership. You go to other countries throughout Europe, and you'll see people rent more, and people don't insure Leasing the individual; they insure the, the car. The Leasing is going through the roof in the UK, and it looks to over. It looks like it's going to overtake ownership within the next five years. <coughs> and this is my point, and you'll start to see an evolution of how things back to this frictionless. In a land of utility, it's a utility. And I'm just going to rent the stuff I need, and I don't want to own the assets to depreciate. But there will still be insured. Completely. Um, the UK insurers charge 11 billion to private motorists every every single year, and uh, all of that is its break-even industry. So there's an 11 billion pounds tax on living in this country and driving in this country that will hopefully disappear, and all of that value will go back into society. Scary fact, very big number. Uh, Leader, Freddie, Nigel, thank you very much. Really appreciate your chat. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Well, that's it. We've come to the end of another awesome episode of Fintech Insider. Please keep those five-star reviews coming and feel free to follow us on at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. Coming up next week, we are taking this show on the road a little with reports coming to you from Chris Skinner and Chloe James from Money 2020 in Las Vegas. Thanks again to our guests this week, Leader, Freddie and Nigel. And thank you for you guys for listening. Catch you next week. 